0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Intelligence from the Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In 230 years, all but three American Supreme Court justices have been white. All but five have been men. As promised, President Joe Biden has now nominated a black woman, Ketanji Brown Jackson. We look at why it's a savvy choice. And there's a broad perception that in police work and court trials, eyewitness testimony isn't infallible. Memories fade and even change over time. We look at new studies aimed at getting to the truth that witnesses hold. But first, In Ukraine's capital, Kiev, a curfew has been lifted after a weekend during which the city has been under relentless attack. Ukrainian forces are still holding off Russian assaults in Kiev and in the country's other major cities. The strength of the resistance may have surprised Russia's President Vladimir Putin. And the resistance at home has been sharp too. Russian police detained an estimated 900 people for protesting against the war. An increasingly united and committed Western response stepped up over the weekend, closing off airspace, cutting Russia out of the international payments network called SWIFT, and striking pointedly at Russia's war chest.
1: We will paralyze the assets of Russia's central bank. This will freeze its transactions And it made it impossible for the central bank to liquidate assets.
0: More immediately, though, are the provisioning of weapons and hardware. Germany made big promises, as did the European Union, an unusual move announced by the EU's foreign minister, Joseph Borrell.
2: Another taboo has fallen. The taboo that the European Union was not uh, providing arms in a war. Yes, we are doing because this war requires our engagement in order to support the Ukrainian army.
0: Mr. Putin too has raised the stakes, ordering that Russia's nuclear forces be put on high alert. Today, negotiators have arrived in Moscow for peace talks, but a peace deal seems implausible. Ukraine and its perhaps surprisingly steely leader, President Vladimir Zelensky, have so far held off a Russian rout and marshaled a serious international response. But it is early. And Mr. Zelensky reportedly told Britain's prime minister that the next 24 hours will be crucial.
3: The Russian invasion of Ukraine isn't going to plan.
0: Shashank Joshi is The Economist's defense editor.
3: I've been looking at numerous videos, images of destroyed Russian equipment all across the country. Russia hasn't succeeded in, in taking and holding a single Ukrainian city. And by all accounts, there have been fairly hefty casualties. And Ukraine's air force, remarkably, is still flying. So this really isn't going according to Vladimir Putin's plan.
0: And what has the fighting been like over the weekend?
3: It's been pretty intense. We've seen Russian attacks on Kharkiv, the country's second city, which is quite close to the border with Russia. And Russian forces seem to get inside, but Ukrainian ones repulsed them. And and that seems to have been quite an impressive defense. In the south of the country, Putin's forces have done probably a bit better. They've burst out of Crimea and gone quite far. But that's partly by avoiding major population centers. And there's still very intense fighting. But the most important battle has been for Kiev, the capital city. And there, Jason, Ukrainian forces have done pretty well. They've foiled lots of attacks. And Volodymyr Zelensky, Ukraine's president, has been releasing these defiant even cocky videos from the streets of the capital.
2: You know,
3: the Americans were telling Mr. Zelensky to get out, get to the West, get to safety, fall back. And he didn't listen. You know, he he said, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition in, in a fantastic line. So his popularity is soaring. He looks like this astonishingly resolute wartime leader. And I think it's been a real focal point for Ukrainian resistance
0: and it would appear on the basis of what you're saying essentially that that vladimir putin underestimated what it was going to take to take ukraine
3: yes i want to emphasize at the outset that what we're seeing is only a small proportion of the russian force you know you saw all those all the build ups we talked about for months jason on the, the ukraine's border with with 110 battalion tactical groups 190,000 troops only a fraction of those have been committed so i want everyone to be really careful in the lessons they draw from the first four or five days of fighting. But having said that, I think if if Putin expected Ukraine to collapse with a little probing, a little pushing around, he couldn't have been more wrong. And I think there have been a number of military mistakes. We're seeing U- uh, Russian supply lines extended and stretched. So there are convoys without fuel broken down on the side of the road. We have seen Ukrainian drones continue to take out Russian forces on the ground. That's amazing. I would, I would not have thought Ukrainian drones would be up in the air at this stage of the conflict. But you, uh, Russia's Air Force simply has not secured command of the skies. And I think it's clear to me that Russian morale in many places is low. We've seen videos of Russian troops where, you know, they don't know exactly why they're there. And many of them are captured. So I think, I think Putin has underestimated at least the initial stage of this, And another
0: of of Mr. Putin's potential miscalculations here was how how divided and disorganized the the West would be when it actually came to to this confrontation.
3: Well, the Western response has been astonishing. It's been far more robust than I thought possible or likely. And that's that's true at the popular level and the political level. In London, there were people standing up to the Ukrainian national anthem. In New York, they were shouting, stand for Ukraine. And at the political level, there's also been really strong support for Ukraine. And not just in words, but also in deeds, actual tangible material support. How do you mean? Well, lots of different sorts, but most importantly, arms, weapons, the stuff that Ukrainian forces need to fight the Russians. So on Friday, Britain chaired a conference with more than 25 countries including America and Canada, and they all pledged to continue sending ammunition, anti-tank weapons, and other arms to Ukraine. And even Germany, which had previously refused to send any lethal aid, changed
1: its mind.
3: Germany said it would invest more than 2% of its GDP in defense every year from now on. This is a huge deal. This is something that you know, American governments have been trying to get Germany to do for well over a decade. So for me, this is a a sort of seismic moment in German security in European defense. This moment's going to be remembered for a very long time.
0: But another moment that set the world on edge this weekend was a a change in uh, Russia's nuclear stance. Can you help us make sense of that?
3: Sure. What Vladimir Putin said was that he was going to move his deterrence forces, in other words, his nuclear forces, to what he called a special mode of combat duty. In other words, he was moving nuclear forces to higher readiness. To understand that, you have to remember that in peacetime, Russia's command and control system for its nuclear forces cannot physically transmit launch orders. It's as if the circuits are disconnected. And what this means is that the circuits are being connected. So the system can now allow a launch order to occur. And it can allow that even if Vladimir Putin is incapacitated. So it's a kind of real sharp signal to the West to say, don't mess with us in Ukraine, don't intervene, don't get involved, because the consequences could be very serious. It's kind of brazen nuclear signaling uh, to raise the risks and keep the West away. And what do you make of that threat? Well, I think it's profoundly worrying. You know, this is a huge, the biggest war in Europe we're seeing for at least 25 years, possibly longer. Misunderstandings and misperception can happen. But I think, you know, we shouldn't think this is kind of a, a precursor to a nuclear strike. It really is a way for Putin to try and raise the stakes. And I, to be honest, I don't think NATO is going to be deterred. I think they're going to say, we hear you, this is dangerous and reckless, which is what NATO's Secretary General said yesterday. But we're still going to keep giving arms to Ukraine.
0: And as you say, it's it's very early days and we shouldn't draw too many conclusions yet, but there is this united international response. There is uh, There have been these hangups on the ground for the Russian troops. How do you see this playing out in the next few days?
3: I think that Kiev is going to come under profound pressure in the coming days. There are lots of Russian forces heading south, just tens of kilometers away from the city. I think that Russian tactics are also bound to change. I think that So far, what they have tried hasn't really worked. But the Russian armed forces are competent on the whole. They're going to change and adapt. They're going to use much more intense violence, I think. But that's also going to raise real dilemmas. We can see already many Russian forces are confused as to why they're here, why they're attacking a country that their leadership insisted it would not attack. And in fact, insisted was a sort of brotherly nation to Russia. And I think if you're a Russian officer and your Russian troops told to start launching thermobaric fuel air weapons with, with terrible destructive potential into urban areas, or start lobbing uh, volleys of rocket fire into residential built up areas, you're going to start asking yourself some difficult questions. So I think what we're going to see ahead is a much more intense, difficult phase of the campaign, not necessarily one in which uh, Russia uh, sweeps through. But I think the gloves are probably going to be taken off more and more.
0: Shashank, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Jason, thank you very much.
0: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, relax.
2: It's my honor to introduce to the country a daughter of former public school teachers, a proven consensus-builder, an accomplished lawyer, a distinguished jurist on one of the nation's most prestigious courts. My nominee for the United States Supreme Court is Judge Katanji Jackson.
0: On Friday, President Joe Biden kept his promise to nominate the first black woman to sit on
2: the Supreme Court. For too long, Our government, our courts, haven't looked like America. I believe it's time that we have a court that reflects the
0: full talents and greatness of our nation. If the nomination is approved by the Senate, Judge Jackson, who will then be 51, will take the position currently held by Stephen Breyer, who's 83, when he retires in June. As a young lawyer, Judge Jackson actually clerked for Justice Breyer. Justice Breyer, the members of the Senate will decide if I fill your seat. But please know that I could never fill your shoes. But that path from nomination to the bench can be tricky. In some
1: ways, Judge Gatanji Brown Jackson has followed a conventional path to reach the Supreme Court.
0: Stephen Maisie is our Supreme Court correspondent.
1: Like eight of the nine sitting justices, she is a product of the Ivy League, with two degrees from Harvard. Like six of the nine, she clerked for a Supreme Court justice early in her career. And like eight of the nine, she served as a federal judge before being promoted. She was a district court judge in the District of Columbia from 2013 to June 2021, when she was confirmed by the Senate to the Circuit Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. This is a frequent springboard to the Supreme Court. Now, just looking at those details, it seems she's straight out of central casting for a Supreme Court justice but in other ways, she's less usual.
0: Less usual in in what sense? What do you mean?
1: Well, it's not just the obvious point of her identity that she will be, of 116 justices, just the sixth woman and fourth person of color and the first black woman. Her resume has some items that are rare or even unprecedented. Eight of the nine sitting justices have been circuit court judges, where they hear appeals, but if confirmed, Judge Jackson would only be the second current justice, along with Justice Sotomayor, to have experience as a district court judge, that is, a judge who hears cases at the trial level. Judge Jackson would also be the very first member of the Supreme Court ever to have served as a public defender, where she represented poor defendants who could not afford to hire their own lawyers. Also, in 2010, Jackson became vice chair of the U.S. Sentencing Commission, where she helped to dial down harsh penalties for crack cocaine offenses punishments which had disproportionately affected Black Americans. For her, this was not an abstract injustice. When she was a teenager, an uncle of hers was imprisoned for life for a minor drug crime. He was granted clemency 30 years later by President Obama in 2016.
0: And how has her nomination been received?
1: Well, nine years ago, she was unanimously confirmed by the Senate to her lower court seat. Her confirmation to the appeals court last year was a 53 to 44 vote, but these days even that counts as bipartisan. There were three Republicans who joined all 50 members of the Democratic caucus last June. They were Susan Collins, Lindsey Graham, and Lisa Murkowski. But recent Supreme Court nominations have been pitched partisan battles, and there is little reason to expect otherwise with this nomination. Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate minority leader, called Judge Jackson the favored choice of far-left, dark-money groups that have spent years attacking the legitimacy and structure of the court itself. The chair of the Republican National Committee, Ronna McDaniel, issued a statement calling Judge Jackson, quote, a radical left-wing activist who would rubber-stamp Biden's disastrous agenda, unquote. Few details accompany these rather outlandish claims about Judge Jackson's record and her ideology. And that seems to be due to how difficult it is to square that assessment of her record with the facts of her nearly three-decade career in the law. It is not one of either radicalism or far-left activist politics.
0: So what is her record? What, what are some, some cases that she's weighed in on that would give us a steer here?
1: Not a lot of cases we've heard much about. The dockets for trial court judges don't often include hot-button issues. And even as an appeals court judge, which she has been for only about eight months, Judge Jackson has not weighed in on many of the divisive legal questions in American politics. In 2019, she did make headlines as a district court judge. She rejected the claim of Donald Trump's White House counsel, Don McGahn, that he could be directed by Trump not to testify before Congress, she wrote in that long opinion, presidents are not kings and do not have subjects bound by loyalty or blood whose destiny they are entitled to control. So this ruling led Mr. McGann to testify before the House Judiciary Committee last year as to whether Mr. Trump may have obstructed Robert Mueller's Russia probe. That opinion raised her public profile, and I expect it will come up in her Senate hearings.
0: And do you think all of that would be enough to to risk derailing her nomination?
1: Probably not. The Democrats control the Senate. Yes, it's by the slimmest possible margin of 50 votes. But in the event of a tie, Kamala Harris's vote as vice president will be enough to confirm Judge Jackson. And Biden has already seated dozens of lower court judges without a single dissenting vote from any Democrat. The main question is whether some Republicans may join the Democratic caucus to confirm Judge Jackson, and if so, how many?
0: And broadly, how would her appointment change the court, do you think?
1: Ideologically, in the short run, not by much. The court would still be weighted six to three towards Republican-appointed justices. But Judge Jackson is young. She would be the second youngest justice after Amy Coney Barrett. So her path on the court could be a very long one. We would, of course, learn much more about her judicial style if she's confirmed. But a few things we do know about her. She shares some basic characteristics with her former boss and the outgoing justice, Stephen Breyer. She is pragmatic. She's civil. She's warm. She's moderate by temperament. And she's judicial in the basic traditional sense of being careful and rigorous and disciplined. And she has been a consensus builder and a good listener throughout her career, which would seem to make her a good colleague, not just to her two liberal colleagues on the court, Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan, but to the full bench. And maybe she would even be a liberal justice who would have more luck forging jurisprudential ties with some of the justices to her right. Of course, first she has to get there.
0: Thanks very much for your time, Stephen. Thank you for having me.
3: I'm Gordon Coulter. For many years, I served as a law enforcement officer. Today, it's my privilege to host this program on a little-known area in law enforcement, but important to every small community and every large city across our vast country. It's the area of satanic cults.
0: The year is 1994, and this training video is called Law Enforcement Guide to Satanic Cults a so-called Satanic Panic had swept through America. The theory went that thousands of ordinary people were secretly members of devil-worshipping cults that abused and murdered children on an industrial scale. On the strength of testimony by alleged victims, many people went to prison. But in time, it became clear that practically none of the hysteria was based in fact, and the whole affair cast lasting doubt on the primacy of
2: memories. One after effect of the satanic panic was to really make it obvious to the public just how unreliable eyewitness testimony can be.
0: Tim Cross writes about science and technology for The Economist.
2: And so that skepticism is sort of the way that both the public and I guess the criminal justice system has thought about eyewitness testimony ever since. But there was some interesting research presented at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Science that suggested that maybe the pendulum swung a bit too far the other way and that blanket skepticism isn't always warranted. But what was
0: it about the satanic panic that really cemented this skepticism in the public's mind?
2: I think it was a couple of things. I mean, psychologists had already started to suspect that memory was much more malleable than people up to that point had thought. So you had people like Elizabeth Loftus who ran a whole series of experiments that demonstrated that memory is not like taking a picture of a scene and and sticking it in a filing cabinet and coming back to it and sort of looking at it years later. It's much more fuzzy than that what the satanic panic kind of did is prove in a very sort of lurid and un- unignorable way just how powerful this effect can be and just how you know untrustworthy even sort of strong memories that people claim to be very sure of, can potentially be. And this is more than just an academic concern, because you know eyewitness testimony is often used in trials. And if you look at the work done by the Innocence Project, for instance, which is an American charity, one piece of work they did looked at 375 cases of wrongful convictions, where someone had been convicted of a crime and then exonerated, sometimes many years later. And they found in that data set that witnesses misidentifying suspects was a factor in about 70% of those miscarriages of justice. So this stuff really matters in the real world.
0: How is it that this new research challenges that assumption we now have about eyewitness testimony?
2: So this is based on many years of research done by a guy called John Wickstead, who's a psychologist at the University of California. And essentially what it says is that eyewitness memory can actually be very reliable, but only in the right set of circumstances. And those circumstances are sort of very peculiar, and you have to get them right.
0: What what do you mean conditions just right? What conditions are those?
2: There were kind of two strands to his research, I guess. And the first was that actually people are pretty good at assessing the accuracy of their own memories. So this is based on lab work where you show people a simulated crime and then you present them with a, a photo lineup. And if they can spot the suspect in the lineup and they're quite certain that they can then most of the time they're right. Things only get dicey when they can't be sure either way. The second strand is that that only holds true the first time you ask them the question. I suppose it's a little bit like in quantum mechanics, where when you try to measure the position of a particle, the very act of measuring it changes it. And something similar, it seems, happens with memories, where if you present someone with a photo lineup. The very act of looking at all the faces, that seems to contaminate the witness's memory with those faces and mean that subsequent tests are much, much less reliable. So the upshot of Dr. Wicks' research is that you can use eyewitness evidence and it is reliable when you do it if the eyewitness says that it is, but you can only do it once. And once you've asked them the question once, you then can't ask them again if you want a reliable answer.
0: That makes plenty of sense. I'm just wondering how much police departments and the like will put this kind of knowledge into use or, or if this just sort of an academic finding of some interest?
2: It's worth noting that the police department in Houston have done a field test that seems to back up Dr. Wickstead's general arguments. I just go back to the point about the satanic panic. This stuff really does matter in the real world. And Dr. Wickstead ended his lecture with several examples of people who have been convicted of crimes, you know, including murder. And these are people who are now on death row and basically said, if my research is right, some of these convictions look more than a little shaky because they relied on eyewitness evidence in court that in some cases completely contradicted the first set of eyewitness evidence.
0: Tim, thanks very much for joining us. Thanks, Jason.